Hi, I'm Caroline Jones, the Wellington College Archivist, and it's a pleasure to be back bringing you another spotlight on part of the college's history and on a very special object in our collection. Three years ago, we sent letters to all the old Wellingtonians we could contact who'd been here during the 1940s and 1950s, asking them to send in their memories of that time. They responded magnificently, sending lots of wonderful material, most of which is now available to read on a special Wellington College Heritage website. Some of them also sent in physical items to be added to our collection, and it's one of those that I want to start with. It was sent in by an OW called Tom Courtney Clack, who was here from 1954 to 1959. In his final term here, he had a starring role in a very special musical production, the college's specially commissioned centenary opera, Music from Mars, and he sent us an LP vinyl recording of it, recorded at one of the performances. Now, I'd previously read about this opera in our school magazines and yearbooks, and to be honest, I'd thought it sounded a bit weird, a bit serious, and not very interesting. However, when we'd had this record digitised and I was able to listen to it, I discovered how wrong I was. Although the subject matter might seem a bit strange, the opera itself is not at all serious. It's short, engaging, and I think really funny. The music is accessible, it's quite catchy in places, and don't be put off by the name opera, it's really much more of an operetta or a musical. So this sent me on something of a private mission to find out more about music from Mars and its writers, and that's what I'd like to share with you today. Wellington College marked the centenary of its opening in 1959, and a lot of effort went into celebrating the event. The high spot of the celebrations was a full day visit from Her Majesty the Queen, and that's something I've already talked about in another podcast. But there was also an exhibition, special dinners for college staff and for old Wellingtonians, and lots more events, one of which was the Centenary Opera. The director of music at Wellington in those days was a man called Morris Allen. He was here for 25 years and had a tremendous influence on music here. It seems to have been his idea to commission a piece especially for the Centenary celebrations, and who better to approach than a former Wellington pupil who was starting to make a name for himself as a composer. The man in question was called James Bernard, and he'd been in the Harding from the beginning of 1939 until the summer of 1943. At Wellington, he'd been very musical. He won the piano competitions and was described as one of the most promising pianists we've had in recent years. And even then, he'd been interested in composing. We know that he wrote a piece for the Harding to perform in the house singing competition. Yes, you might be surprised to know that that's one of our oldest competitions. At that time, the head of art at college was a teacher called Kenneth Green, who was also talented as a set designer for theatre and operas. He was working with the composer Benjamin Britten on the set for Britten's opera Peter Grimes. On one of Britten's visits to college, to see Green, James Bernard made contact with him to ask his advice on the piece that he was writing for the house singing. And that was the start of a long relationship in which Britton encouraged and advised Bernard in his musical work. James Bernard left college in 1943, in the middle of the Second World War, and so he joined the RAF. But he kept in touch with Britton, who encouraged him to go to the Royal College of Music. So after the war, he did that. 
and also worked as Britain's assistant, preparing the opera Billy Budd for publication. James Bernard was gay, and in the RAF he met his life partner, Paul Dane. They moved in together in 1946. Paul was a writer, starting to write for films, and he and James worked together on the screenplay for a film called Seven Days to Noon, which came out in 1950. In 1952, they were jointly awarded the Oscar for Best Writing in a Motion Picture Story for that script. James then started writing incidental music for radio plays, and from that he was invited to write film scores for the British film studio Hammer. They were just starting on the run of successful horror movies, which would bring them their reputation, and James Bernard's atmospheric music was a big factor in the success of those films. So by the time Maurice Allen approached Bernard and Dane to write the centenary opera, they'd already won an Oscar, and Bernard had scored the successful films The Quatermass Experiment, The Curse of Frankenstein, and Dracula. Those latter two, of course, starred Christopher Lee, another old Wellingtonian, who would have overlapped for a couple of terms here with James Bernard. So what did the pair produce for Wellington? Well, it's a wonderful mixture, I think. It combines a humorous picture of public school life with a love of music and the angle of science fiction. Now, science fiction had been growing in popularity from the late 19th century onwards, but the 1950s were something of a heyday for it. Authors such as Ray Bradbury, John Wyndham, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke were publishing some of their most important works in that decade, and there was a surge in the popularity of science fiction films. Some of the best known from that era are The Day the Earth Stood Still, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Forbidden Planet and, as we've already mentioned, the Quatermass Experiment. But not many of those had been humorous, and I think that's where music from Mars scores best. So let's have a closer look at it, and more importantly, a listen to some of it. The piece begins, so the programme tells us, in the speech hall of any boys' school in England but Wellington. That's a rather tongue-in-cheek description, as, in fact, the school bears a marked resemblance to Wellington. It's a few days before the house singing competition, as we know, well known to James Bernard, and three boys and a music teacher are meeting to rehearse their house's entry. This is a song which has actually been written by one of the younger boys, Finch. Remember, this was an era where all the boys in school were known to one another and to their teachers just by their surnames. So let's have a listen to them getting ready to rehearse. That, Mowbray, is not the music for the house singing competition. No, Sinclair. Oh, I wish it was. <laughs> Where's Finch? Still writing out the parts. Is it a good song? I don't know. I haven't seen it. He says it came to him in a dream. Nothing ever comes to me in a dream. <laughs> I've got to be at the next in ten minutes. Where's old Toby? Mr. Toby's lost his tuning fork. It's all right. I've, I've found it. Where, sir? <laughs> well, in my hand, actually. I sometimes use it to clean out my pipe. Now, Finch, the parts, the parts. Yes, sir. Bass and clap, tenor mowbray, and treble me. And a full score for you to conduct from, sir. Finch, are you quite well? Yes, sir, thank you, sir. Hmm. It came in a dream, sir. 
You should lie on your right side, Finch, and ask mention for extra <laughs> Why are there no words except laugh? Last what came to be in a dream. Why is there no end? I woke up too early, sir. I'm still waiting for the end to come. You don't by any chance remember dreaming something a shade more traditional, like uh, Hearts of Oak, or I saw lovely Phyllis. No, sir. So, as you heard, the rather unusual piece of music came to Finch in a dream. Mr. Tovey is somewhat unimpressed, but the group starts to sing the music and they're joined by the matron of the sanatorium, what we would call the health centre. But it seems that Finch somehow picked up this piece of music in his dream from another planet, because singing it miraculously transports the whole group to Mars. There, they speak to some of the Martians and learn that they are, in fact, in the grounds of a boys' school on Mars. The pupils there have learnt to understand English by listening to Earth's BBC radio, to what were then called the Home Service, the equivalent of Radio 4 today, the Light Programme, more like Radio 1 or Radio 2, and the Third Programme, Radio 3. This means that they can only understand English when it's sung, not spoken. Let's listen to their recitation of all the Earth songs that they've learnt from the radio. We learn it by listening in secret each night Two songs on the third or the home or the light We can master a sentence, a phrase or a word If it's sung, if it's sung, if it's sung, if it's sung If it's sung on the light or the home or the third We This, of course, means that all the Earth characters have to sing from now on to be understood, which is quite a clever way of making your play into a musical. The two groups are chatting, but they're interrupted by the High Master of the Martian School. He doesn't approve of his pupils having any contact with Earth. He says that Mars is a quiet star, and he fears it will be contaminated by war and all the other bad things about Earth. The High Master was played by one boy on stage, but his voice was actually sung by two other off-stage boys whose voices came through microphones, thus enabling the character to sing in both treble and bass register at the same time. I think, perhaps, the technology couldn't quite match up to the concept of this idea, because on the recording, both voices are rather faint and indistinct. But here's a little of what it sounded like.
The High Master detects that one of the Martian boys has been contaminated by Earth ideas, so he orders that this boy and all the Earthlings should be ground to nuclear dust to stop the infection going any further, despite them pleading to be allowed to go back to Earth. Here's the matron listing all the work which is waiting for her back on Earth. It's an amusing litany of all the ailments and injuries of the boys back at school. There you are. Brown needs clean towels, both Joneses have chills, and Bottomley's bowels need infinite pills. But these arguments have no effect. The Earth Party and the Martian Boy are thrown into a dungeon to await their fate. The Martian likes the Earth practice, unknown on Mars, of giving everyone names, and pleads to have his own name. He chooses to be called Elbert, because this is treble backwards, in keeping with the musical theme of the piece. The group decide that because it was Fincher's dream of Martian music which brought them here, Elbert must dream some Earth music to take them back. Elbert says that Martians never sleep, but by taking Matron's sleeping medicine and counting sheep, he manages to snooze. Just in the nick of time, he dreams an Earth tune, and all of them, including Elbert, find themselves back on Earth. Even better, Elbert's tune proves to be the missing end of Fincher's music, so they have a complete piece to perform at the house singing competition. It still has no words other than la, but here they are singing it to the end. there you have it. And if you'd like to listen to the piece in its entirety, you can do so on the Wellington College Heritage website, wellingtoncollegehistory.co.uk, in the podcasts and audio section. I'm very grateful to the estate of James Bernard for giving us permission to make it available there, and also to my colleague Lucy Sims for isolating those clips for you to listen to. Music from Mars was performed three times at Wellington in the week of the 15th of June, 1959. The orchestra and the cast were all Wellington students, except for Nigel Davison, who played Mr. Tovey, the music teacher. He was a Wellington teacher and also an old Wellingtonian. As well as James Bernard, the college had also been able to call in some more talented alumni to help. The old Wellingtonian's Timothy O'Brien, 
who designed the sets and costumes, and Geoffrey Gilbertson, who did the lighting, both of whom were already working professionally in those fields. The college director of music, Maurice Allen, conducted. So how was the opera received when it was performed? It's been suggested to me that when Maurice Allen commissioned the piece, he didn't envisage anything so unusual and experimental as this, but of course he had to go along with what he was given. I don't think we'll ever know if that's true or not. The review in The Wellingtonian, written, I think, by James Watt, a teacher who loved theatre, was generally positive, but said that the characters in the play were well portrayed, but the voices could not always match the technical difficulties, as is always the case with untrained and immature singers. And in particular, he mentioned the problems caused by the two singers off stage using microphones. However, he does say that the piece had simplicity, sparkle and originality, and that the cast were evidently enjoying themselves and their delight communicated itself to the audience. James Bernard hoped that Music from Mars might become his first published work, and he asked his old friend and mentor Benjamin Britten to recommend it to his publisher, but Britten refused. He said he thought it was a bit too exclusive to Wellington to have a wide appeal, and also that it was too technically difficult for most young people to sing. We don't know how James replied to Britain, but we do know that in a letter to a different friend, he said that this response had made him frightfully cross, because it didn't seem any more difficult than lots of things Britain had written for the young, and the boys had performed it without any problems, in fact, brilliantly. So it's good to know that James Bernard himself thought that the cast had done brilliantly, even if he was trying to make a point. James went on to have a very successful career as a film composer. He wrote the scores for over 20 horror films for Hammer and other studios. His music is a key part of what gives these films their frightening atmosphere, and several of his techniques were very innovative. Paul Dane, the lyricist, became a successful screenwriter. His films included the James Bond movie Goldfinger and the all-star 1970s film of Murder on the Orient Express. He and James were a couple for 30 years until Paul's death. Timothy O'Brien, the designer, went on to design for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre and the West End musical Evita. And Geoffrey Gilbertson, who did the lighting, worked at Glyndebourne Opera for 30 years. All of these men had already begun their creative careers when they were involved with music from Mars. But what I find really interesting is how many of the student cast members also went on to pursue careers in the performing arts. For example, James Montgomery, who played Finch, became a TV and radio broadcaster and had a long career with Southern Television. Colin Harris, another of the schoolboy characters, became an actor and drama teacher working at the Institute of Theatre Studies in Paris. Tom Courtney Clack, who took the part of Matron and sent us the record, founded and ran a successful sound effects studio in New York, while Anthony Covell, who played Albert, was the founding director of Pool Arts Centre. So the reviewer's comment that the cast clearly enjoyed the experience does seem to be true, because so many of them continued to pursue the arts. I've really enjoyed researching music from Mars, especially finding out more about James Bernard. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing about it, and that you might be inspired to go and have a listen. So far, I've been unsuccessful in my attempts to find a score of the music anywhere, but I live in hope that one day I might, and then we might even be able to stage a revival of music from Mars.
That's all for now, but I hope to be back next term to look at a different part of our Wellington history.